Matt just gave me some strange, everybody hear about the chemical attack in Syria? What's the, what's the latest death toll? Last I heard was, huh? A hundred. Um, Assad apparently launched a couple of um, nerve gas um, into Syria and when at lunchtime the death toll was 58, uh, but it was rising. It's a nerve gas, serum gas. If you play video games, then you know the game well, uh, the gas well. Um, it was also on um, the movie The Rock, Syria. And um, there were two different. One was at a hospital and one was somewhere. And uh, so we need to keep that mess in prayers. And then Matt just told me that North Korea launched a missile that came just short of where did it land, Matt? Just short of South Korea? And the reason why that's very important to us is because Zach Robinson will be moving to South Korea soon. So, um, yeah. So, we'll just need to keep all that stuff in our thoughts and prayers, and I'm going to ask Eddie to open us with prayer, and then we'll begin, fittingly enough, bless are the peacemakers. All right, so we're on the last two. I want to thank Eddie for teaching last week. I was at the, at the hospital with um, the Kreitz family, um, kind of on a watch, and being with Don as, um, after we took Patty off life support. And I told Eddie I felt better being there, sitting with Don, than I did being here. And one of us had to be there, and, and I sent Eddie the notes and he probably did a better job than me, and so we're good. We're going to begin tonight. Two more left. Um, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Um, the blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God, which is a very important. We're going to spend some time. We haven't really spent much time, if you've noticed, dealing with the second part of a lot of these, but we're going to do that a little bit tonight. So, as a review, uh, we, Jesus begins Sermon on the Mount with eight um, what we now call uh, Beatitudes. Uh, in Jesus' day, they would have been probably been known as benedictions or blessings, um, which is the same benediction as a blessing. And, um, and, and so, and they're simple, but what, what a lot of people have done is they've made them um, very complicated and very at the same time very watered down because there's a lot of uh, preachers and teachers and, and I take a different 
view of it. There's a lot of preachers and teachers that, that say that these eight Beatitudes um, are ideals that cannot be reached. This is how we should be as characteristics of a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And I have problems with that. Um, and also there's others that say they make them almost like cute, warm, fuzzy things. You know, uh, there's a book by a, United, a retired United Methodist preacher from the Houston area whose name will be left unsaid, um, who wrote a bazillion books, and I think this was towards the end, and I think he was out of material, and, and he wrote, a, and he called the Be Happy-tudes or something like that, and that waters down what these are about. Uh, we have talked about the word bless. Uh, bless does not mean happy. It's a horrible translation, um, it, it, well, let me rephrase that. It's a fine translation of the word that is used, but it's a horrible translation in understanding the Jewish understanding of what Jesus was doing. The, the, the Greek word, it can be translated to, to happy, but that was not Jesus, nor was it Matthew's intention or, or Luke's when he wrote it. The idea of a blessing in the Jewish faith uh, the benediction in the Jewish faith was a reminder to that who is being blessed that God is with them, or as I like to say, that God is on their side. And uh, of these eight Beatitudes, the first four um, are pronouncements. They are, they are not, uh, we hear teachers and preachers say, um, blessed are the meek, and then they tell you you should be meek. And, and we have this understanding of meek, and it's such a bad understanding of meek. But that's not what it is. Jesus does not say you should be meek, you should mourn, which would make no sense, by the way, as we talked about. Blessed are those who mourn, especially if you use the word happy. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those that grieve. Makes no sense. But to those first four, Jesus is saying to them, uh, God has not forgotten you. God is on your side, and the reason why that's so important is because the people who were on the mountain with Jesus were not the rich and famous. For the most part, they were the poor, those on the margins, those who were being excluded, those who were being told they weren't good enough, they were the slaves, they were the Gentiles, they were the Greeks, they were those who were not part of the inner clan. The religious leaders would have been somewhere, but they would have been off to the side. They would not have been, and the reason why they wouldn't have been in the crowd, because they were Gentiles. A religious leader cannot touch or be near a Gentile, or else they'd be unclean. So you get this picture. Uh, the, the, the Aramaic word for this crowd would be mishmash, um, if you want to translate it my way. And so it's just a, a group of people. And, and so we, we, that's kind of where we are and that's where we come to, and it's important to understand that, um, of, of what we have come with. Now, the first four were pronouncements. The next couple, blessed are the pure in heart, was more of a characteristic of what the kingdom of God is and will be. Remember, we talked about this in the Christian faith, uh, Eddie could explain it just fine. There was two understandings of the there was two understandings of the kingdom of God, right? It's called eschatology. If you want to get all fancy with the words, 
uh, eschatology, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Uh, eschatology is the end times, more or less. And there's two different understandings. There's the, the kingdom of God that is here, now, and the kingdom of God that is coming. It's called a realized and a future eschatology. Uh, if you read my credo, my 30-page paper to get out of Perkins, and my Board of Ordained Ministry stuff, I believe, because you know me, I'm not going to be committed to either one, that it was both. It's here, and it's here, but yet it's still coming. Uh, to understand that, Jesus, you just look at Jesus and John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached sermons that said, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is coming. Remember? Work with me. Jesus preached the sermons, and he said, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here. Here, but yet coming. So Jesus here is painting an image of the kingdom of God in, the, in uh, the pure in heart and those who are merciful. Okay? So he's painting this image of what the kingdom of God is. And for Jesus, it's not some just thing out in the future, but it's here now and it's available now. To be pure in heart is to... Uh, is, to, um, is to basically admit that you don't have it all together, right? Uh, for, for, for the Jewish understanding of pure in heart, it's not to be without sin, which some preachers want to say. Look, these are not characteristics that, they, that Jesus picked to say you can't get there. These are characteristics that say you can get there. You have to change the way you think. And to be pure in heart is that you, you, two things have to happen. You have to admit that you don't have it all together, and you have to remind yourself that you can't do it by yourself. That's it. And, to G, and for Jesus on the Beatitude, that's what he says. For those of you who don't have it all together and you know it, for those of you who rely on God, God is on your side. And then there's the merciful. Um, and what he says on this one, right, Lord's Prayer, once again, 57 words. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Father, forgive me. Uh, Father, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Same thing. Okay? Uh, and mercy is more than just forgiveness. It's being able to get into someone's skin and understand how they're feeling. All right, so now we move on. Uh, and now this is the, this raises the bar. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called children of God. Now, like I said, we're going to look a little bit um, about what that children of God thing is. Um, best way I can explain it is a personal story. When, when the boys were younger and they were playing baseball in Beaumont and I would drive in and and I would stand along the fence line by the, dug, by the opposite dugout that they were in. I never stood on the fence line of their dugout. I didn't want to be one of those dads. Right? I wanted to encourage them, but I didn't want to... They were playing, and they had a coach. They didn't need me. So I'd stand on the other side uh, so they could both see me. They could still hear me cheer for them, but I was not coaching them or telling him what to do or anything like that. So I'd stand there. And one of my best friends in Beaumont uh, was a guy named Donnie Warner. I just love Donnie. 
Uh, and, and Donnie one time came over and he sat on the fence line with me and, and his boy played with Connor, Connor's age, but we were watching Zach play and, and I hadn't seen Donnie for a couple, a month or so. And, and Donnie said, you know, Marty, your boys, they're great. I, I, I see him at church when you're not there and because and I was living in Lake Jackson, they were living in Beaumont. And, and the, I just want you to know you have two great boys, but the problem is you can never deny that they're yours because they are just like you in so many ways. In fact, what he, the, the line he used was, they are a chip off the old block. Now, I hadn't heard that line for a, for a very, very long time, um, but, but that's what it means to be called a child of God, that you are a chip off the old block, that the main characteristic of God is seen in you, and what I believe Jesus was saying, that the main characteristic of God is that he was a, a peacemaker. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemaker, he's sharing what is a central characteristic of God. Now, we have to understand uh, peace. It, it's interesting, um, not to teach you Aramaic or Greek, but if I was, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, Matthew wrote in Greek. That's why you kind of have to mix them together. If I was going to teach, I would tell you this. The word that Matthew chooses to use for peacemaker in Greek is found nowhere else in the Bible. One time, right here and only here. It's at the root of the word that Matthew uses is the word we've talked about, shalom. And if you remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about shalom, it's the most important word in the Hebrew language, I think. The problem with shalom is there's no English translation for it. There is no word we have that encompasses the understanding of shalom. It does not mean peace. Peace is part of it. Shalom is a, is a, um, is a wholeness, if you will. Okay, it's, it's taking that which is broken and making it whole. Okay, Jewish understanding of the Garden of Eden was a place of shalom. It was whole. It was complete. It wasn't perfect. The reason why we know it wasn't perfect because Adam was told to tend the garden. If he needed to work in the garden, it couldn't have been perfect. We always have that misconception. But it was whole and it was complete and it was unbroken. And then, in Jewish understanding, Adam and Eve ate the fruit off the middle of the tree in the garden, yada, 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 and it became broken. It became shalom left. And the Jewish Hebrew scriptures is, a, is their journey of the people to get back to shalom, this wholeness. So really, what Jesus is saying is, um, blessed are the whole makers, because that's what a peacemaker does. A peacemaker brings uh, wholeness to people, to circumstances, to situations, and to relationships. Blessed are the whole makers, the one that repairs what is broken. Is that clear, what a peacemaker is? Understanding, and at least my understanding, is going to be different by most preachers. This is just mine. Okay? Now, if I use the word peace to you, what do you think of? If you're like most people, you think of the absence of stuff. I asked Eddie, what's peace? Eddie would say, what's the absence of war? 
What's peace? It's the absence of evil. It's the absence of violence. See, that's, that's our understanding of, of peace. But when Hebrews and Greeks heard the word peace, or actually shalom, they wouldn't think about what was absent. They would think about what was present. For them, shalom is the complete presence of God, the presence of grace, and the presence of mercy. See the difference? Everybody clear? It's huge understanding there. Huh? Okay. When we use the word peace, we think of what's not there. Peace in the Middle East means a Middle East without violence. All right? Be at peace means have no evil or have no war or whatever you want to use. When a Hebrew or a Greek used it, it wasn't that the shalom wasn't a sense of what was absent and what was present. And what was present was the full presence of God, the full presence of grace, and the full presence of mercy. So when the angels say, peace be with you, wasn't talking about may you have a life without war or life without strife. May you experience the presence of God in a complete and full and whole way. Do you know that? Did you just learn something? Good. Um, and once again, we, 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 we use it. We, we just, the problem that we do is we don't, we can't, we can't understand the New Testament unless we spend time in the Hebrew Scripture. We can't understand the Hebrew Scripture unless we understand what the Jewish mindset was. And that's why I spend a lot of time trying to teach that because you miss it. It, it, what, what, when, 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 when the angels um, say peace be with you or peace or when Jesus says I offer you peace, my peace I give you not as the world gives you but as I give you he's not talking about what is absent he's talking about what is present and what is present is the fullness of God, the completeness of grace and the totality of mercy questions? and that's a huge thing I mean that's that's worth the price of a mission right there, um, my opinion, because it changes. I don't know, how many times, Eddie, you think the angel or God or somebody says peace when they show up? Bashal. And, and, and that's, mm. now, did, what, te- what two did you teach last week? I can't remember now. Yeah, mercy. Did you use, how much of my stuff that I sent you did you use, seriously? Okay. I, no, I, I just want to know, because if any, what, what merciful means is mercy in the Jewish understanding is getting in the skin of someone, okay? And it is an action, right? It's not a feeling, it's an action, right? Empathy is a feeling, Oh, I feel for you. Mercy is crawling into the skin of somebody and really getting it and then doing something about it. 
like mercy, and the reason why I had to know that, make sure we understood that, because peacemaking is the exact same thing. It requires action. Blessed are the peacemakers. You can't be a peacemaker if you don't do something. Peacemaking is not a passive, nor is it reactive, right? It's proactive. You know the difference? Stephen Covey made a fortune out of just stealing other people's stuff. Proactive is it makes the choice for peace before anything happens. If you, if you understand Stephen Covey, step one, be proactive. You choose the response that you're going to make. If you want to know if someone's reactive or proactive, listen to their language, right? If they say, I have to go here, that's reactive. If they say, I get to go there, they're making a choice that's proactive. Because you don't have to do anything. You get to. Just listen to people's language. Everybody has to. I was always just giggle. No, you really don't. You can just sit here. You don't do anything. You get to. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. So the way I heard this explained by a rabbi, one of Jill's patients, is there's two types of people in the world. There's thermostats and thermometers. A thermometer is reactive. It adjusts to the temperature of the room. A thermometer waits to be acted upon. That is not a peacemaker. A thermostat what, does what? Sets the temperature of the room. It doesn't react, it's proacts. That's what a peacemaker is. It doesn't adjust to the new norm or to the norm. Instead, it makes things the new norm. A peacemaker changes what is going on. That which is broken becomes whole. Peacemaker is a thermostat. Okay? Questions? Matt, you have scripture or not? Did you get up? Five? Okay. I'm going to read to you um, five. I don't think I'll do 21 through 23. Um, let's go to 30, 38, 48. Let me see. Let's see if I wrote I might have written it down wrong. Uh, 38, 48 is about law of love. Remember we did all this, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I say to you, turn the other cheek. Remember all that? Right, anybody with me? Uh, Jesus, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's the peacemaker. Got to remember, Beatitudes set up the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and what we talked about Sunday in church concludes what the Beatitudes just set up. So Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those. God is on your side when you reconcile and you build relationships rather than break relationships. God is on your side when you, when you forgive rather than seek revenge. God is on your side when you choose love over choosing the law. So we, we went through all of this, um, even reviewed of it on, on Sunday. If you weren't here because of the horrible storms that came, I, I was worried the whole morning. I was so worried about my car getting hail damage, and uh, I, Eddie built an ark because we were going to have to float home, and it was, man, I don't know, it was... Did anyone get any rain? At 6 o'clock in the evening, 6 o'clock, 
Jill, Jill says, oh, look, it's raining. There were four drops on the window. Done. Over. Um, so so the, the peacemaker, if you want to know what a if you want to know what a peacemaker is, you look at the life of Jesus, and, and, you, and you've got it. He sought reconciliation, he loved his enemy, and he went the second mile. That's a peacemaker. Now, I, I have sometimes, oftentimes failed to be a peacemaker, uh, but there's one time I actually succeeded that I can say. I was, I, the kingdom of God was ushered in at those moments. It was, um, those of you who know, most of you know, that my dad abandoned us, and I've been on this lifelong quest to, to reconnect with him, and he has no desire to reconnect, but I keep trying, or I did. I've, I finally wised up. Um, you, you know, I, that's seven times 70. I probably did 491 uh, times. Um, would reach out and get slapped, reach out and get slapped, reach out and get slapped. Understand, you're a peacemaker because of what you do, not how the other person responds. It's like forgiveness. I can, do, I can pick on Bob because he's a gator, which is just a horrible thing to be. We can pray for him. Now we have to pray for Brenda, too, because she's wearing blue and orange and not Mets, but gator blue and orange. And... Um, I can, I can ask Bob for forgiveness. That is my responsibility. I cannot, it does not matter whether or not Bob forgives me. That's his responsibility. I'm a peacemaker when I do everything in my power to make something that is broken whole. The other person may choose not to play along and it stays broken. Understand that? It's what we do. We cannot control what Bob does. We can control what we do. And once we start realizing that, we're, we're going to be just happier people. Um, but it goes back to forgiveness. And when I ask, when I forgive my dad, right, he didn't, he could care less or couldn't. Is it couldn't care less or could care less? Which one is it? couldn't care less. It's a really dumb stain, by the way, because no one gets it right. He didn't care, right? And, uh, but it didn't matter. I didn't forgive him for him. I forgave him for me. Lewis Smeads, my, hey Matt, are you listening to this? You can be mean to me right now. My favorite author, at this point, Matt says, everyone's your favorite author. Just like book, my favorite book of the Bible. Every book's your favorite book of the Bible. Um, Lewis Smedes writes this. He says, when you forgive someone, you set the prisoner free, and then you realize that you were the prisoner. That's why you're a peacemaker. Um, your job, our job, is to restore the, to, to do everything in our power to restore a relationship, even if the offer for restoration is rejected. Again, Jesus, perfect example. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They didn't, the soldiers could, couldn't care less, and so forth, so on. Okay. So the, the purpose of this beatitude is to make us stop and examine what is broken in our lives. What relationships are broken, 
What situation do we need to restore and, and to look for ways that God is calling us to be peacemakers? And then we're a chip off the old block, as Donnie would say. Okay? Questions on blessed are the peacemakers, for they should get a fruit basket. Has anyone read the book? Yeah, well, but I wanted to do, everybody gets a fruit basket. Has anybody yet read the book? Good, don't. Is it, I, I reread it um, after that Fat Tuesday, and then I thought, why did I tell people about that book? It's really sacrilegious, but it's so funny. Just remember, it's fiction, right? It's like the Da Vinci Code. Remember how upset everyone got over the Da Vinci Code? And I had to keep reminding church people, where'd you find it? In the fiction section, not real. It's a story. There were, there were pickets. When I was in College Station, there were the picket lines by, the, by another denomination, which should go unnamed, Southern Baptist. Um, they were... They were picketing Last Temptation of Christ. Remember that? Which, by the way, is a phenomenal movie, right? And all these people are up in arms because I went to it, right? And so I'm, I'm going in, and these people are just like yelling at me. I said, look, I'm a Methodist minister. I'm good. And they said, you shouldn't be going in there. And I said, oh, I did. Here's my line. I said, it would be fiction. Fiction means not true. They couldn't understand. But if you've never seen the movie... Just watch the last 10 minutes. Most powerful 10 minutes of any movie you'll see. Anybody see it other than me? Anybody read the book? Hey, last 10 minutes, remember it? Jesus on the cross. I just, spoiler alert, because I know none of you are going to watch it. Because um, it's, it's evil. Um, the book is phenomenal, but the movie was good. Um, Jesus is on the cross. The whole idea is the last temptation of Christ. That the, the whole time, it's just a, it's, it's this guy, who wrote it, I can't remember. It's this guy, this, uh, this author's vision of what might have been going through Jesus' mind as he was on the cross. And the last temptation Jesus faces, would he stand the cross or would he get off the cross? Would he go through with what he was supposed to do or would he just, because he was God. He could have just said, hey, I'm done. Called the angels down, smote everybody and, you know, would have been fine. He could have done that. And so this, so this guy's going through this imagination of what might have been going through Jesus' mind. So the movie ends in the most powerful way. I just get goosebumps. Um, Jesus, the voice of Jesus, guy who played Jesus, is telling the story of the lost son, Luke 15. What we wrongly call the prodigal son, but the lost son. And, and he's telling this story verbally, that's what you hear, but what you see is um, uh, uh, Jesus on the cross, but yet you see him crawling to the cross, right? So it's just like an incredible cin- cin- cinematic feat here, and he's crawling to the cross as he's talking about the lost son uh, making the decision to return home to the Father, right? And so uh, this is powerful. Wow. I mean, this is brilliant, brilliantly done. Okay. Huh? Nah, I've read the book. I think the book was cool, but again, it's fiction. Fiction. I remember when that book came out, people went crazy. Fiction. God probably really isn't, um, um, what's, a, what's a maple syrup lady? 
no, not Miss Butterworth, Aunt Jemima. But that's who she looks like, right, in my mind. When I'm reading the book, just before the movie, reading the book, I thought, all I could see was Aunt Jemima. And I was like, man, maple syrup, that's heaven. Um, but just think about it, right? You eat all the maple syrup you want in heaven, and you never get fat, and your cholesterol never goes up. It's a good place to be. Um, okay, so now we're... <laughs> this is a long day. Um, and I'm really hungry. Um, blessed are those that are persecuted. Now, I... The Bible, throughout the Bible, there are two worlds that are spoken about, right? Did you know that? There's a world that exists, and then there's a world that God created to exist in the way he wanted it to exist. Um, There's a world we know that we're living in, and there's a world that God intended things to be from the beginning. Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, are um, those eight statements that try to describe the world that God desired to exist, okay? The whole Sermon on the Mount does, and, and that's why it's revolutionary, because it takes the values that the world we live in, and it flips them to the world God um, created. Um, so if you just start reading the Beatitudes, you know, look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? And poor in spirit are those who are, um, they're the losers. They're the zeros. They're the one that no one cares about. And, and, and here's Jesus speaking to those people, and he just says, you know, you, God's on your side. And all the religious leaders freaked out. Um, just remember the reason why Jesus was crucified. It had nothing to do with religion. Don't ever buy it. It had nothing to do with his faith. There are people walking around all day long saying they were the Messiah, they were God, blah, blah, blah. Reason why Jesus was crucified, there's two reasons. Only two. Ready? Reason one, he, took, he threatened the power of the people who were in power. Two, he took money out of the people's pockets. That's it. That's why. Paul, when, when Paul was getting ripped in Rome and, and being thrown out of cities, they could care, couldn't care less. Did I do that one right? They couldn't care less what Paul was preaching. You know who got mad at him? Remember who got mad at him? It wasn't the religious leaders. They didn't care. It was the merchants. You know why? Because they were selling, making money off gods and goddesses and, and sacrifices. And here's Paul saying, well, those are all wrong. Don't buy that stuff. And so they chopped his head off. Right? Everybody know that? I mean, that's a little history. Jesus was not crucified because he said he was the son of God. He was crucified because he took power away from those in power and he took money out of their pockets, bottom line. Martin Luther was thrown out of the Catholic Church, not because he posted 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, but because he took money out of the pockets of those who were in power. Always comes down to power and money, just remember that. Every war, every conflict, Everything, power money. Civil war had nothing to do with slavery. That was just the thing that made it good. Right? And we'll go, we're, we're doing this about slavery. No, we're doing... Money. World War II, nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. We would have been in it without Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor made it easy for the president to say, let's go in. Money. 
Sorry, that was a history lesson. I learned that in history. Can't remember I'm history buff. Okay, um, final beatitude, persecution. What I really should have done is had Eddie teach this one. Because this one, well, this is a hard one for us, right? I mean, let's just be honest. When was the last time you were persecuted for, having, for coming to church? You might have been persecuted in church or punished. But um, when's the last time you persecuted for coming to church? Anybody lose a job because they went to church? Anybody get kicked out of their apartment building or their house or couldn't live in their HOA because they went to church? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Anyone? No, you know, it doesn't happen. Right? I mean, this is Fort Bend, year 2017, and we are not persecuted. In fact, I'm willing to bet that you're more persecuted if someone says, where do you go to church, and you don't, can't name a church because then you're you're the minority. Now, I'm not saying you're the minority because everyone names a church. Right? They did a, the joke in Tyler when I was in Bullard was that everyone was a, if everyone who claimed to be a member of Green Acres Baptist Church actually went to Green Acres Baptist Church, there would be no one on the streets on Sunday morning because everybody in Tyler claimed to be a member of Green Acres Baptist Church. They didn't go, but you have to be a member somewhere, so you just pick a church, right? Yes, sir. Because of being Jewish? I have a Jewish background. I never felt it. But I was in New York, an Italian Catholic. Why would they care about you? There you well, that's the problem. See, you're in the Bronx. I was in Brooklyn. <laughs> and and you, you, you had the Yankees. Well, I didn't have the Dodgers. I had the Mets. Um, so, but we're not persecuted today, so, so I had to think about, and, and this is why I wish I just would let Eddie do it, or just stopped at, you know, seven, um, because I had to really start figuring out, and this really stumped me, um, last week of what, what is Jesus talking about, because some people would say that, well, Jesus wasn't really talking to us, he was talking to, you know, people who were being, there's nowhere in the Bible, there's nowhere in red that Jesus does that, right? If Jesus spoke it and it was recorded and 2,000, laters, 2000 years later we're still reading it, then you just have to assume there's something in it for us, right? Now, the easy ones are, you know, to talk about persecution. I found these two persecuting stories and they're just heartbreaking, by the way. Um, one is about a guy named Vikesh Patrick. He was a newlywed from India. He was Christian, him and his fiance, his wife. Uh, they were on their honeymoon and in Nepal, and they went to worship on Sunday morning. They were uh, singing in church, the last line of a hymn. This lady in front of them uh, put down uh, something underneath the seat, and then she walked off, ended up being bombed. His, um, fiance, his wife was killed, and he was badly burned. That's persecuted for your faith. There's, and you can Google these if you don't believe that they really do exist. I'm not making them up. Um, then there's um, a, a lady named Shakila Biba, and she was in her 20s, and she was uh, heading to go to a Monday afternoon Bible study. A mob of a group of guys stopped her and, and literally just beat the hell out of her until she died. That's persecuted for your faith. So we understand persecution for that, right? Right? We, we understand that. We understand Christians being 
persecuted, beheaded, thrown in jail. We, we get that. The problem is, this is uh, Fort Bend County in the year 2017, and I would venture to say we are not, our lives are not in danger, uh, our jobs are not in danger, our retirement is not in danger, we're not in danger of getting kicked out of our HOA because we claim to be follower of Jesus. So, what is he talking about? If he's talking about ordinary people living in suburbia, there has to be meaning for this. Anybody want to share what they think? I even wrote that in there. Ask for discussion so we can have this silence and it will give me a chance to get a drink. Anybody? You're not being persecuted because of your faith. When, and, and I had somebody one tell me, well, I'm being persecuted because I can't, our HOA won't let us put at the entrance of our thing uh, the nativity scene. That's not, you're not being persecuted because of that. That's not persecution. Your rights aren't being, you're not being threatened. You're just, you know. You want to talk about being persecuted? Uh, I was, when I was training for my last half marathon, I was running through Buffalo Bayou, and it was just, things were just ugly, uh, you know, in the world. It was just bad time to be a Muslim. And um, I ran by these two um, Muslims, and I stopped. And, you know, I, I generally don't do this. And I just turned around, and I just walked up to them, introduced myself, told them I was Methodist minister. Of course, they got a little nervous. I think they thought I was going to preach to them. And, and all I said is I want to apologize. Um, if, if anybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus has um, threatened you, ridiculed you, persecuted I want, I, I want to apologize on behalf of, because those are not the followers of Jesus I know. And they said that there was a, um, they were at the synagogue, I'm not synagogue, they were at the, the um, mosque, and this one guy came out, his tire was slashed. And I thought, you know, I mean, obviously we don't know who did it, but. Yes, to handle it. Well, you just, go ahead, you just took my whole line. Way to go, Jim, just blow it off. But that's it. No, I mean, you didn't. Because, see, what Jesus is saying here is, Jim, you are not going to be persecuted, but you are. It is costly if you're going to follow the Sermon on the Mount. If you're going to follow what I'm about to tell you, this is Jesus, in the next two, two and a half chapters, it's going to cost you something, right? You. It's going to cost you something because you're going to be different than the rest of the world that you're living in. Because you're going to forgive when other people aren't going to forgive. You're going to love those at the unlovable. I'm going to pick on you because I love you. You're the one who's going to visit the prisoner, not it costs. And what Jesus is saying, if you want to be part of the revolution, it is not a cheap thing to be.
Okay. Yep. Yep. And I think I think hopefully most Americans have. That's right. But it costs you. It's it costs you something. Uh, Bonhoeffer, Matt, my other favorite author, um, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Right? Has anybody read that? Parts of it. Oh. It should be required reading to join a church. You have to read Bonhoeffer, Cost of Discipleship. I think we're going to make that. If you're going to be a member, yeah. But and what he says is, it's not going to cost you your money. It's not going to cost you your job, but it does cost you. It co- because you're going at, when, 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 you, when you choose to live what Jesus is talking about, you may not be persecuted like getting beaten, and get, but it costs you something. Because you have to change your lifestyle. You have to go against what the rest of the community is telling you how you're supposed to live. Perfect, exa- perfect example, not to get in a political discussion because I don't want to, but um, um, we, have, we have a couple of, of uh, gay couples coming to our church now, right? And I had a member who got up and left and they told me because they didn't want to sit behind a, the gay couple, right? Now, my, what it cost me was, I don't know if these people ever come back, I mean, not the gay couple, but the member, because I said, well, my, and my only line was, well, what would Jesus do? And that's all I knew to say, and it's such a trite, corny line, but it's the only thing that came out of my mouth that I could repeat, um, well, because, look, I don't understand the gay lifestyle. I don't get it. I don't get paid to get it. But when people walk into this church, they need to be embraced because we're, we all are, we're all broken. Yeah, we're all broken. And that's what the Methodist Church discipline says. All of us stand in need of grace. Every one of us are a child of God. That's what the discipline says. And, and to reject someone or to not want to sit next to somebody, and all I thought back was, was when, when I first moved to Florida. I mean, we moved to Florida in, in the 70, 72, I think. 72-ish, I don't remember. 72, 73. And I remember going Dairy Queen. Uh, honest truth. Uh, you know, I didn't know what... I didn't know what racism was. I was in Brooklyn. I mean, our, our neighborhood, <laughs> there wasn't a race not represented, I think, in our street. And um, we went to Dairy Queen. And I was just so stupid and naive, you know. I had no clue. And there was water fountains with the sign, colored white. I had to ask my mom. I thought, what the heck, mom? What is that? And she had to explain it to me. And then years later, I found out, because I had a really good friend who was um, African-American, and he came over to the house. This is, this is in 72, in Florida, right? Came over to the house, mom received phone calls, wanted to know why they were letting uh, one of those people in the neighborhood, right? 
And all I could think about was there's this whole thing over the, over the color of your skin. Now we're having a whole thing over something totally different, over sexuality. And all Jesus says is, look, you just love and it cost. And it, it probably cost me a church family. But I just did what I thought Jesus would want me to do when I'm preaching on the Sermon on the Mount about love it would have been difficult for me to say, well, that's okay. You don't have to sit next to people. So, that's costly. Not going to get beaten, I don't think. May lose some members, whatever. Um, but that's what Jesus is talking about. Because when you're involved in a revolution, you remember like the first revolution, this Declaration of Independence? Um, they pledged their fame and their fortune and their sacred honor, right? Their lives are fortune and sacred honor. That's what Jesus is saying this cost. And so what he's saying is the, we may not be persecuted, but we are called to live the Sermon on the Mount and we are called to be the voice and to stand up um, and to be willing to lose a friend, uh, to lose sleep, to lose money, to do what is right as defined in the red letters of the Sermon on the Mount. And there is no one in this room better to speak about that than Jim and probably Eddie. Because in their ways of doing their ministries, they usher in the kingdom of God to a group of people that the rest of us just would rather keep somewhere else. I mean, let's just be real. Am I wrong or right, Jim? Yeah, you don't want to brag. I'll brag on you. Eddie? It, it requires action. Now, what's cool about this, and I'm sorry if I got a little bit you know, political on you. Um, what's cool about this verse, though, is, is this, okay, remember and if you don't buy this, then it won't be cool for you. But I think it's like the coolest thing in the Sermon on the Mount. These are not commandments. Sermon on the Mount begins with pronouncements. There's not one commandment yet, right? With me? Nothing Jesus says you're supposed to do. Thou shalt, right? Right? Until this. And this is like, I just love this. I wish I could just preach this and not have to skip it. Um, okay. Happy, oh God, I forgot common English uses happy. Blessed are you when people insult you and harass you and speak all kinds of bad and false things about you because of me. That goes back to the persecution, just so you know. Uh, and here it is, right? Be full of joy and be glad because you have a great reward in heaven. The only, now, in, in, in the Greek, it, it says rejoice and, and, and um, uh, be glad, right? Rejoice and be glad. But in the Greek, it's an imperative which means this is the only thing in the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says this is what you have to do. And what do you have to do? You have to rejoice and be glad because you're being persecuted, right? Because you're being insulted. The word that, that Jesus uses for rejoice or that Matthew chooses to use for rejoice, it comes from the Greek word kalos. You know what kalos means? It's gift or grace. Remember, uh, Eucharist, kalos is gift. 
And, and so what Jesus is saying, this is a gift. When, when, when someone persecutes you or insults you because of what you're doing, because of me, it's a gift you're given. And then, and then be glad. You know, this is, this is such a bad translation. Uh, because the Greek word that Matthew used means to leap much. Isn't that cool? So the one commandment Jesus gives, the first 12 verses, the only thing he says, this is what you have to do, and he says, you have to do this, right? Is you're supposed to receive, this, receive the gift, right, of persecution and be thankful because you got a great gift, and you're so happy, what do you do? You leap much. Isn't that... No one else. I, yeah, I mean, right? Isn't that the coolest... Right? The, and, and when you read it, and, and this is the only imperative Jesus says, and this is the most forceful language he uses in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Even when he's talking about turning the other cheek and, and eye for an eye stuff, the most forceful, imperative Greek language that is used is in verse 12. You... you You've got to do this. You've got to rejoice, and you've got to leap much. So I just, to me, that's like the most fun part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't get to preach it in church. But we could leap. Wouldn't that be fun? I'll pay to see Joan Hill leap. We'll sell tickets. We'll be debt-free. Yeah, that's true. You'd have to go to the hospital. Um, so, so that's the Beatitudes, according to my understanding of what Jesus was talking about. Again, it will be different than what you probably have heard or will hear, unless I actually preach it in fall, which I'm thinking about doing, just preaching them in fall. Take eight weeks preaching them. You guys can skip church. When am I going to preach Leviticus? When I get really mad at you guys. And okay, it'll be, I'll tell you what, I'll preach Leviticus. Um, I'll start the series the day that I announce I'm moving. Well, because if I started preaching Leviticus, I am telling you, there'd be people staying home. Because they think it's boring. It's just, because whenever I, whenever I say, oh I, that w- oh, I could do that, I'll preach Leviticus, and then I'll get moved. There you go. And now if you preach Leviticus, you're going to start a bunch of talk. <laughs> um, because every time I threaten to preach Leviticus, you can just watch people's faces groan. I mean, it's just like, oh, people like, even Jill. Jill's like, Really? You're joking. You're not really going to preach Leviticus, are you? I said, well, yeah, why can't I preach Leviticus? Huh? Well, numbers, numbers, I, I'm not going to preach. I'm not going to preach. Eddie's going to preach numbers this summer. That would be short. I'm, I'm going to preach Jude, word by word. Um, yeah, I, I did look at Leviticus for next fall. I just don't know how to break it down. I, I don't know how to break it up. Because I thought about going just verse by verse. But 
we'd be there for three years. And um, I could be dead, and then I won't get to finish it. Um, then I thought about just doing um, the holy days, because all the Jewish holy days come out of Leviticus. And I thought, well, but that misses the really fun parts of Leviticus. And so, I don't know. I think Jill will skip church. She'll work every Sunday if I do Leviticus. But <laughs> Hey, Matt, could, are there a lot of hymns out of Leviticus? Name one. Oh. Hmm? Has, Pat, has your son-in-law ever preached on Leviticus? Ask him. Ask him if he's ever thought about preaching a series on Leviticus. There's some what? The whole book is fun. There's only like, okay, here's your problem with Leviticus, right? We'd have to change the way we dress. I mean, because one of the, one of the clobber passages, there's only eight passage in the Bible that talks about homosexuality, just so you know. Huh? Leviticus 18, 16 is used, right? But like right after it, um, no, right before it, right before it, yeah, it is right after. Right after that, uh, Leviticus talks about not wearing mixed clothing. Like don't put polyester and cotton together because it's a sin. So I don't know how I would do that because I wear a lot of cotton, but there's also blend. Like my Levi's have cotton, but there's also blend in there. Yeah, and I, I like shrimp. Uh, I don't eat, but I, do, I did tell Zach he was going to go to hell because he was eating crawfish. What do you mean, Dad? I said, it's in the Bible. Are you want to argue with the Bible? But, Dad, you're eating shrimp. But it's not crawfish. And the Bible says don't suck the brains out of another animal. And I'm just saying. Um... So yeah, there's some parts of Leviticus that would be just really difficult because there's just no way to explain what was wrong with doing cotton and polyester together. How do you know? Were you there? Bill? Did they have polyester back then? No, but it says mix, it says mixed fibers. Mixed fibers. Anyhow, so if someone can break it down into where I can do it in, in like two months, eight weeks, I'll do Leviticus in eight weeks. Because the way I broke it down, it was going to take about 16. <laughs> well, because there's like six, there's six feasts. So that's one feast a week. So that's six weeks right there. Boy, we could get, we could grow the shofar. I have a shofar, you know. I have two. And we can have a goat. No, we have to bring a goat. If you preach Leviticus, you've got to have the goat. No, you have to have a goat. No. No. You've got to have a goat. If you preach Leviticus, you've got to have a goat. So, so since we don't allow coffee cups in the sanctuary, um, I doubt if I can bring a goat in. So I could bring a goat? Okay, wait a second. I want, I, want, I want to talk this through. You can bring a goat, but I can't bring my coffee cup in. 
I, I'd, rather have, I'd rather have a little coffee than what a goat would leave behind. I'm just saying. I need a goat and I need a, um, I need a royal priest. Eddie, can you be the royal priest? No, I want a real goat. If I do Leviticus, I'm using a real goat for the Day of Atonement. You, it's the best story in the Bible. No, they didn't slaughter it. They took, they took, red, they took red yarn, and they wrapped it around the, bull, the horns of the goat. And then the high priest would do something, but then a Gentile would lead the goat out of the village. And then when it got out in the village, it would slap on its butt and it would run because it would carry the sins of the community, the scapegoat. The Day of Atonement. I mean, the Day of Atonement is like the greatest theological day in Scripture. You know? The only thing that could have made Good Friday any better is if instead of, if, if, if a goat would have shown up at the cross. I'm serious. It would have been like the coolest thing. Because it would have fit. Huh? Well, I'm done. I'm, uh, I'm just rambling because it's 7.30 now so we can leave. I promised an hour. We're an hour. We got off topic. Um, questions on Beatitudes. You won't want to miss Sunday. I'm not preaching, but if you're just dying to hear preaching, Eddie's preaching 8 o'clock um, um, Palm Sunday. What are you preaching on? Yeah, because cause, cause I'm, I'm thinking for Easter preaching about the resurrection. See how, that, see, how that, see, see how that goes. So, Matt, any questions? Yes, sir. I have fun wherever I go. I did. I, took, I went to Perkins because um, I wanted to go somewhere where I wouldn't. There's two reasons why I chose Perkins. One, because I, I took the Cokesbury list of books, and I took the, uh, the professors at Perkins and at Emory, and at a union, and I said, who's writing the most books that Cokesbury's selling? And it was Perkins. And I also took Perkins because I wanted Albert Outler. So like a goober, he retires. Not only does he retire, he has a falling out with the campus, and he never came back to, pre- to teach there again, so I never got Outler. Um, but I, went to, I took classes at Perkins based on um, theology. I, 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 I would not take any class from a professor knowingly that I agreed with theologically. I would only do those that I disagreed with. Nah, I was the most troublemaker. And uh, in fact, I took Schubert Ogden. Remember Schubert? Yeah, Schubert Ogden is like the most brilliant man I knew, but he didn't believe in the resurrection. Um, he believed the resurrection, in fact, he believed the resurrection was an idea. And, and what I always want to know, and I took him for Christology, I always want to go to his church on Easter morning and just kind of hear the sermon. Um, but for our class, we had to, for the, we had to write a 30-page paper, 25-page paper, on a theologian, a book that a theologian wrote, and we had to explain the book and then uh, either agree with it or disagree with it and prove it. So I picked his book um, on Christology, 
was the name of his book. And I, um, I wrote 23 pages, 13 of them being explaining his book and 10 of why he was wrong. And it was just a blast because he was so helpful. Um, he really was. I'd go into his, every day, every Tuesday, after class I would sit down with him, have a cup of coffee, and I would ask him questions about what he was thinking when he wrote this stuff because it made no sense. And, um, and he just sat there and listened and talked to me. And, but he gave, the little booger gave me an 89. And I went in and I tried to argue for a point and he said, oh no, you just, you, you, you went against what I wrote. You're not getting an A. I said, but I, no. And so I got an 89. Yeah, but that's, isn't that more fun? 